0: Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Is Mexico becoming the new Venezuela? We asked that question of Roberto Salinas-Leon, the director of Atlas Network's new project on Latin America. Check it out. Montpelier yeah. in Mexico City?
1: 19, no, in Cancun. Cancun. January of 1996, it was supposed to be a, a regional meeting and turned out to be more like a general meeting a because little because everybody, everybody came, even though D.C. was hit a, with a huge snowstorm that yeah. uh, prevented some of our best uh, and brightest to, to be able to join us. But uh, it was a fun program. It was the last time Julian Simon participated. Oh, uh, wow. In, uh, in an MPS meeting, because he died so young, right? Yeah. And uh, no, it was great. It was great. Difficult to organize, but. Uh. So, so give people a little bit of your of your
0: background. I, I saw that you uh, you are a member of the Mont Pelerin Society, which I am as well. Uh, which is mm-hmm. where classical liberal economists and philosophers f- famously gathered at the. At the, in the darkest days after World War II to try to figure out how to revive right. the idea of freedom. Uh, but you also went to Hillsdale College, so yes. we, we have some similarities. Give us give us a little bit of your background.
1: Uh, well, um, my family in Mexico has always been keenly interested in classical liberal ideas. My grandfather uh, financed, was a very important businessman there, and uh, he, he uh, financed... Uh, the equivalent of uh, fee uh, in Mexico back then. And actually Leonard Reed, uh, Foundation for Economic Education, was good friends with Muso Ayao, who was also good friends with Austin Navarro He was my professor uh, in Mexico and, and is the person that got me into this. Well, he and my father. <laughs> my, yeah. my father was an important uh, contributor to the cause uh, uh, as well. Uh, and back in the day, there, there was a handful of seven, maybe 10 people, 15 at the most, and we had to, uh, um, we had to exchange these ideas basically in, 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 in silence uh, and, uh, and with a watchful eye to not making um, the government terribly aware or terribly uh, uh, angry at uh, what we were saying and doing. Uh, And so uh, when I finished my degree, I later studied philosophy um, and political theory. And uh, when I went back to Mexico in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, this was when Mexico all of a sudden started thinking about trade with the rest of the world, price liberalization, get rid of price controls, get rid of industrial policy, try something new after a devastating cycle of uh, currency crises and peso devaluation and runaway inflation and it is it was it, it was just a disaster what uh, Mexico suffered through between 1970 and especially 1982 and then the adjustment was extremely painful uh, and and so this new breed of so-called technocrats comes in with Salinas de Gortari and and his economic team and later Ernesto Cedillo that despite the trials and tribulations of Mexico um all of a sudden you're basically arguing for the, what you think are the right policies, such as open trade, such as uh, much greater private participation in different sectors of the economy, telecom, energy, electricity, infrastructure, uh, manufacturing, what, uh, uh, what, what have you. So that's part of what's gotten me very much into the, uh, in, into the mix of trying to support a certain policy and a certain intellectual stance in Mexico. Uh, quite apart from everything that's happened, what I'm happy to say is that the third and fourth generations of young kids that are coming today, we're no longer uh, three or seven or 15. It's more like maybe 400 or into the thousands. And uh, uh, they're, they're, they're kids and they're, they're millennials that are, they flirt with all kinds of ideas. But they, I, at the bottom, I'm, 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 I guarantee you that they have a libertarian core. And that's something very good to see I see
0: that I see that all over the world uh, through through the Atlas network and through Students for Liberty and other organizations, I get a chance to speak um, all over the place mm-hmm. and you know particularly in places where there isn't necessarily a, a classical liberal tradition, a tradition of of free market economics. there seems to be a lot of hunger and a I, lot of hunger yes and indeed. I think part of it is is understanding what big government is actually all about you've You've seen it your your family has suffered on it and, and the other part is your ability to google alternatives so I, I tend to be sort of wildly optimistic about the future of liberty everywhere mm-hmm. including Latin America but you um you uh, you're you, you sort of wear at least two hats right now and and you may be a visiting professor as well but you're your're head of your president of the Mexico
1: business, business forum. forum yes and and are you based in Mexico City I'm based in Mexico City and that's basically it used to be part of the uh, the Economist Corporate Network or the Economist Intelligence Unit and the events that they ran, uh, which is a much longer story, but it was a really cool way of trying to promote classical liberal ideas with a very mainstream uh, um, type of brand. Uh, so ba- back in the day, we had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, I, I retained the uh, I retained the name Mexico Business Forum, where they allowed me to retain the name basically as a... Um, Opportunity to promote both policy advisory and investment advisory, which is a practice I had uh, or continued to have uh, uh, at some point, uh, and and recently with Atlas Network, uh, I've joined their uh, I've joined their Center for Latin America as uh, uh, as director, and I, what I think is a, a timely and wonderful effort. Uh, uh, to that they're trying to put forward. Tell us a little bit of. And by the way, there's apparently
0: uh, the president is flying over us because there's endless airplanes coming over our heads. But we will proceed forth <laughs> anyhow. Uh, tell us a little bit about about the Atlas Network Initiative because you're you're not just working now in Mexico, but you're working across Latin America with with partners who are who are focused on promoting free ideas
1: in in every country, right? Yeah. And 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 also in the U.S., uh, the U.S. and Canada, in trying to, in trying to promote a much greater understanding of what's going on in in, uh, in Latin America. As it is, we can't talk about Latin America as a homogenous region. It's a, a I mean, uh, every country has its different particularities and its different idiosyncrasies, and sometimes within those countries you have very different regions. Yeah. Uh, certainly, that's the case with Mexico. where... Northern Mexico is much more North American than Southern Mexico, Mexico which tends to be much more third world and backward. But there's always a fascinating moment, fascinating um, tendencies to see in Latin America, but everywhere from uh, the, the, the resurgence of populism and creeping statism in Mexico uh, to what you see with the migrant caravans throughout uh, Central America, and despite uh, our good friends at uh, UFM in Guatemala, University, Universidad Francisco Marroquín, uh, Guatemala itself has been facing tremendous challenges. Then you have El Salvador, where at one time you had these spectacular free market reformers that did some, some wonderful things there. And yet nowadays, once again, it seems to be back to the, the, uh, the bad old status ways. Honduras, which is a basket case, even though that's one of the regions that has some of the most out-of-the-box and creative thinking that comes out of the free market world using blockchain to protect private property rights and contracts. I mean, really, really cool stuff. Um, and then uh, perhaps Panama is is, uh, is, a, is a site that, uh, that gives us uh, some hope. Uh, as far as uh, the example is concerned, uh, twenty years ago Colombia was a basket case. It continues to be a basket case, but uh, nevertheless, it has made such tremendous progress in the, taking the steps in the right direction uh, as, as as far as trying to consolidate a more open society. Uh, Venezuela, unfortunately, the 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 way it's imploded, uh, the, the the changes in uh, the changes in Brazil. And now Argentina, Chile—that is probably the country that is most. Um, it would be the one that has the uh, the, the the most claim to become a second world country throughout Latin America, um, and uh, uh, and 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 you you mentioned you mentioned this hunger before. Um, part of what we're trying to do at the center is basically to let our ninety plus institutions that are members of the Atlas Network to talk to each other basically yeah. to facilitate conversation with each other because that conversation leads to ideas about what's going on in Honduras that might help uh, the institutes in southern Argentina that perhaps might inspire somebody in the southern part of Brazil to maybe do something as far as uh, an anti-crime program in, uh, in, uh, in Colombia, and also uh, uh, to increase networking with some of the magnificent institutions all throughout the United States and, and, uh, and Canada. So it's uh I think it's it's a very timely and important effort. And that's
0: I mean that's particularly specifically my agenda for today is I think I think uh we Americans probably don't spend enough time thinking about our friends to the south specifically Mexico but 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 Latin America more generally. And I've always been a little mystified by that. That's I we we just spent um trillions of dollars in 18 years and countless lost American lives trying to impose from the top down liberal democracy in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like, and, and I, I don't think that's a good model um, for Latin America, but I also think uh, maybe we should spend a little more time paying attention, understanding the good things, the bad things, exploding some of the political mythologies um, created by our president and certainly presidents preceding Donald Trump. And and I wanted I wanted to, to, to walk through all that today, I saw you speak in New York a couple days ago, and you particularly focused on a lot of the bad things that are happening with the new um, president
1: in Mexico. Yes, Mr. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador.
0: Uh, he's a president who may have aspirations to be something, permanent. something more permanent. Um, and how Venezuela got to where it was, and, and comparing the origins of chavismo to the to the to the new mexican president it's, it's pretty ominous if you if you look at these parallels so i i thought we might focus a little sure. bit but you got my attention um not not just with that stuff but but apparently the the mexican president's uh, party has proposed a ban on cold beer a ban on cold beer and those, those are fighting words for me like i you know capitalism socialism this stuff really matters but but You'll pry that cold beer out of my dead hand. <laughs> What's what, 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 really messing uh, yeah. at a personal level, right? Why would they do that? By the way, we we brought some cold beer because we're going to flout the fact that for for all of the uh, all of the things that we don't get right in the United States, I can have a cold beer whenever I damn mm, well want. want it. Yep. And, uh, and 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 th- I feel like we should do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is uh, um, fans of this show will know that I'm obsessed with with craft micro beer, and this is from one of my favorite breweries, The Vale. Um, But it's a lager. Um, You can get endless iterations of delicious cold beer in this country. Cheers. As we say
1: in Mexico, salud. Salud. That
0: is cold. Perfectly chilled. (laughs) And I, I don't know what I would do if it was hundred degrees out. <laughs> but what what right. what on earth? Um, why why would any governments want to ban cold beer?
1: I think it's a demonstration of the type of thinking that uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's party and his ilk is uh, uh, is, is is has developed. Um, I like to think. I, I'm sorry if I get a little bit philosophical here, but I like to think of López Obrador as a would-be, I think he thinks himself as a would-be Saint Benedict Mm -hmm. that is going to come and save society from the barbarians at the gate and turn people into virtuous citizens. And, And some of his followers may think that part of that virtue ethic involves, well, you can no longer drink beer because beer leads to diabetes and leads to bad things or it leads to getting drunk or drunk driving or it leads to... Things that are not approved by the uh, imperial father, um, uh, Lopez Obrador. Even the name of his party is very revealing. It's the movement of national regeneration. And if you study those words carefully, that's a profoundly authoritarian Yeah. Uh, um, uh, a concept the idea that I'm going to regenerate the nation it is not that it's going to regenerate itself through institutions and through checks and balances no no no. I'm going to regenerate it I the leader of the party am responsible so I he's almost like a notch above between the archangels and the rest of us common folk and he is going to show us how that that means that he has a monopoly on moral truth, so this is very much like a theocracy, yeah. almost like a like a primitive, uh, um, primitive left wing theocracy, uh, very much like the Chavismo. You know, the first words that Lopez Obrador said after he won was, "I belong to you, the nation," which is exactly what Chavez said yeah. at one point when yeah. he when 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 he won the elections. I no longer belong to myself. I now belong to you, and this is this is uh, Lopez Obrador wakes up every single day. You wake up here in the United States and there's two or three tweets by Donald Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's been an extremely innovative form of, of uh, politics and communications. This guy wakes up. He has his national security briefing from 6 to 7 and then does a two-hour press conference every single day. That's like a two-hour tweet Yeah. from 7 to 9. So what he does is he captures the narrative. And on one of those occasions, the narrative was the cold beer. Right. So, I mean, and, and and the response was, well, I guess we'll have to have it lukewarm. One one uh, famous uh, uh, writer in Mexico, Sergio Sarmiento, says, don't mess with my beer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was literally what he wrote. Uh, and he's a highly respected and widely read uh, um, journalist, uh, uh, well-known here in, in, in the United States as well. And he basically said, I'm sorry, uh, uh, it was the senator from Morena, from the Morena Party, um, a, a a woman who was introducing this piece of legislation is sweetheart. Don't mess with my beer. Yeah, and and uh, there's a line. There's a line in the sand. But but the line is, you're testing. You're really testing the limits when you go and consider that you're actually going to be telling people what they can drink. My son responded. What is it? Now I'm going to have to have lukewarm beer <laughs> instead of cold beer. Why not just beer outright? It would have made things easier. What What's the difference between lukewarm and cold? Is there a certain degree that Lopez Obrador's wisdom is going to be able to tell us exactly how I'm supposed to have beer, what beer I can sell and what beer I cannot sell? This is really, uh, this, this is taking the fatal conceit of Hayek. Yeah. To absurdity, it's a reductio ad absurdum of of, uh, of of the fatal conceit. But that's that's very much what this messianic mentality. And I know so much more than you do, and I'm going to teach you how to behave and how to be virtuous and a good boy or a good girl. Uh, uh, that 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 kind of mentality. That's those are the absurdities that it generates.
0: Well, you notice that th- that your beer says uh, beer is freedom. So we we have very much used uh, beer, and it turns out cold beer. I didn't even. Realized that that was part of the the metaphor that we were talking about. Uh, you know, beer is freedom because it. For me, it started uh, almost two years ago. I was reading an article about the the one remaining brewery in Venezuela, Cerveza Polar, and they were announcing that they could no longer acquire the ingredients to make beer. And so, sort of half jokingly, we made a video. Uh, talking about the the socialist hellhole in Venezuela has now reached peak disaster because if you are living in a socialist hellhole, you you should at least have a cold beer. At least, yeah. At least, I mean, you you probably need a whole six pack to get <laughs> to get through the week. And and of course, when you really dig into the story about why they couldn't get the ingredients to make beer, it turns out that it was it was socialist policies and and hyperinflation. And and protectionism and, and all sorts of things that we know have created the problem in Venezuela. But you know, for, for people that don't really care about Mises and Hayek, um, at, you you do
1: notice when there's no beer on the shelf. Um, well, I'll tell you something. There's another there's another side to that story, uh, and, and just as you mentioned, Matt, um, uh, beer it, 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 I think can be a very important symbol of the power of trade and the power of freedom. And actually, Mexican beer has now become world famous. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about Corona, which is already, which is not considered a good beer in Mexico, by the way. Well, It's I, it's hailed everywhere else. I don't want
0: to pick on Corona either, but it's not considered a good beer in, oh, okay. in some corners okay. of, well, of my their, universe. Well, their,
1: but their marketing has been spectacular. Right, it's right? genius. But now you have Indio, and now you have uh, Montejo, and Pacifico, and Victoria, and Dos Equis, and you can go into any, any, any of these wonderful beer uh, uh, places uh, as you can go into, into the bars today and you see the vast amount, the vast variety of tequila uh, or mezcal. Uh, beer, beer is a good example of what open trade with the rest of the world Does to human beings. We've we've been able to turn it into a fantastic export opportunity, but it also has enabled to generate the resources to be able to import a whole lot of what we couldn't do before. And so in that sense, trying to regulate the temperature of beer, no less. Not not beer itself. The temperature of beer speaks to the uh, hostility to open markets and let people decide. Let them Let them be free to choose if they want it cold, lukewarm, and what kind of beer they want. want, But artesanal beers, uh, um, craft, craft, uh, cervezas artesanales, as we call them in Mexico, they're the great new thing. And you have these kids that are developing and are beginning to find markets, not just in Mexico, but also abroad. And some have failed. But some are already successful. You have cerveza Allende that is beginning there, and 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 and, and some that are mixed with 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 mezcal, and and uh, and that's the spontaneous order of the market trying to find a new niche, a new opportunity, a new way of of uh, of making consumers happier. So it, it 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 is really offensive from a liberty point of view to pretend that you know what temperature I could drink my beer at.
0: Yeah, that's the. Uh and, and that that broader uh, context of 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 protectionism is is a core part, it it seems of, of the new uh, Mexican agenda.
1: I would I would say autarky because they they don't they don't want to mess around with the trade agreement, especially the one with the United States and Canada, knowing full well that it would it could occasion a massive short circuit very quickly and very violently. Yeah, in integrated uh, supply chains, and I. Didn't want to focus. Beer, beer is a an an example of if they do it with cold beer. Imagine what they're going to do with rules of origin on auto parts, or or uh, or, or what are the import export conditions on avocado, mangoes, fruits, flowers, blueberries. Mexico has become a world famous exporter of of, uh, of, of blueberries, or whether we can import. Uh, um technologies from abroad and 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 under what conditions we could import them because the government of lopez obrador has not had any shame in admitting that they would like to basically follow the model of autarky self-autosuficiencia self-sufficiency in energy in foodstuffs in infrastructure and basically mexico is for mexicans and that, for a highly integrated economy as Mexico has been during the past twenty-five years, is not going to lead anywhere good. That's so. But that
0: theme, like it's and and I, I looked up this guy, and and some people compare him to Donald Trump, and other people compare him to Bernie Sanders, and and they're both right, and they're both right, and they're both right. And one of those things is sort of that that zero-sum game, uh, nationalist. Anti-trade mentality that by by trading with with other countries, you, you somehow lose. you lose, and of course the the opposite is true. But that that seems to be on the rise. It seems to be on the rise in Mexico. Um, certainly, it is it is part of the Venezuelan model. Um, uh, like explicitly sort of blocking things from coming in and blocking people from leaving, is is part of what the Maduro regime has has imposed. But but. How do, we, how do we explain to people the mutually beneficial uh, nature of trade? How, how would you explain it if you're making this argument in, in Mexico?
1: I don't, have to, I don't have to go very far in Mexico to make the argument. What the nationalism that, that is, uh, tends to be more pervasive in Mexico has to do with certain strategic sectors like energy that is near and dear to our heart, the oil. And the oil is ours, it's not yours. Of course, there's no investment to develop it and nobody's going to go into deep waters and and invest the billions of dollars that you need in order to develop it, which is one of the reasons that Mexico undertook an energy reform in the last uh, administration. That administration, because it also, very unfortunately, got mired into a whole cycle of corruption and impunity. Now people say, well, it's because of the energy reform and corruption and impunity, so there's a... um, it's, it's failure by association or it's false by association, but it, that's that's actually a, a misleading argument. But I would tell you that as far as trade is concerned, despite this romance and this nostalgia for the, for the autarky of Mexico, you have far broader support. It's only the occasional extreme academic that is going to be against free trade, even with the United States, because you see the enormous advantages that is brought, not just from the side of exports, Mexico exports, very few Americans know this, but Mexico exports $1 billion of manufactured products per day, per day, which is already, as it is, an incredible sum. But in GDP, once once you calculate it in terms of the differences in GDP between the United States and Mexico, it's, it's a formidable amount. So trade today represents more than 70% of Mexico's economy. It's, it's tight to global, global trade uh, uh, itself. So, uh, so that's exports. But it also imports a formidable amount. Mexico buys more from Texas alone than the rest of the 49 states of the United States buy from Texas alone. That's a staggering figure. Yeah. That's into the hundreds of billions of dollars. And that shows you that there is purchasing power south of the border. Now they did this freely and voluntarily. They weren't coerced to do it. It's not because I'm winning and you're losing. No, you're buying stuff, right? Alabama doesn't lose because it buys stuff from Connecticut, or or, or Oregon loses because it's because it buys stuff from Florida. No, you you trade between it. Nobody's lose, loses any sleep if there's a trade deficit between California and New York well maybe in California and New York they do but uh, uh, but so so why why think in terms of the balance of payments or some fake macroeconomic notion what you have to look at go to the border that's what I would tell the United States people go to the border. go to citizens of Juárez or Laredo Nuevo Laredo Juárez and El Paso despite the violence despite the ugliness despite the heat despite everything you see people trading stuff. And going back and forth every single day and they consider themselves part of a single region what they would like to see is all these transaction costs going away so that they could facilitate what greater trade because they know that if you're able to buy in nogales at the walmart in nogales the same television station that you can buy in nogales uh, sonora instead of nogales arizona you do it in nogales sonora then it depends on the exchange rate and where the television is cheaper, and the consumer is going to do what? Buy a better product at a better price, and that's that's freedom to choose, and that's what that's what the United States economy is supposed to be all about. So to go against to now be protectionist and say that the Mexicans have stolen our jobs and have done this to us—they've done a lot of bad things, and as the U.S. has done bad things—but it's not about trade. Let them let them worry about trade. Let let adult that responsible adults engage in capitalist acts as far as uh, trade is concerned. That's the last area that we should be concerned about. Yeah,
0: it's, I mean, it's genuinely mystifying to me. I, um, I talked to your your colleague uh, Elena Toledo from Honduras and uh, she was talking about, and we were talking about the caravans that, that originate in Honduras and, and work their way uh, through Mexico, and Trump has of course made a big deal about mm-hmm. this 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 invasion. Um, but you and I know that that people don't pack up their families and and walk halfway across a continent because they want to. they They do it out of desperation. They do it because they they don't have an opportunity to feed their children at home. So it, it seems to me that if we want to do something about that sort of economic migration, if we're worried about that we we might focus more on expanding trade not not limiting trade
1: exactly and it's not just expanding trade because that's only one of many other conditions but it it, it certainly does contribute toward a, it's one uh, that
0: it's one that we could control yes. through us policy at least yes. not not restrict
1: it and i think you could say the same thing if if you, if you want to liberate venezuela quickly Engage in not sanctions. Engage in greater trade. I, I would argue the same thing about uh, uh, the same thing about Cuba. I think Cuba has a. a and when when goods travel, Matt, you know better uh, this better than anybody. When goods travel, ideas also travel, and with those ideas, that's that's what gets traction going as far as um, as far as being able for people to discover new things and new worlds and and, uh, uh, and, and new possibilities. Today you go to the border or the northern states in, in, in Mexico and they're a radically different country or region than they were twenty five or thirty years ago. You have agricultural zones that turned into world class manufacturing centers. You have some of the most spectacular tourism opportunities, whether it's Baja California or whether it's uh, um or whether it's the Riviera Maya or even in the Pacific and also on, on the Atlantic coast of uh of Veracruz, you have some of the most uh, innovative real estate developments uh, uh, that uh, that have occurred. That some of them were even able to survive the housing crisis and the real estate crisis in 2009 and, and 2008 and 2009. And um, and it doesn't matter if you're. If you're Pri or you're Morena or you're Pan or whatever, if you're in the north, you're going to want to trade because that's what it's all about. That's what trade is all about. The main worry there has to do with security, rule of law, protection of contracts, and protection of property rights. And people are finally talking about this. Why? Because now they found out that it's relevant to what? To trade. Yeah. To trade. So that's one of the one of the un, unintended consequences of – beneficial unintended consequences of open trade is that people that have no ideological orientation that may have never read hayek or friedman or even some of our great latin american thinkers alberdi and sarmiento and jose maria luis mora all of a sudden become conscious that gee it's important to have a long-term reliable contract in order to be able to secure a transaction it's no longer going to be the graft and the wheeling and dealing it still is unfortunately but for the big operations no way you, let's let's go back and, and
0: since since we're taking on trade and, and certainly some of my conservative viewers are are more skeptical they they think that Donald Trump is is just negotiating a better deal, um, but let's talk about sanctions and let's talk about the U.S. response to Maduro and Venezuela. But I, I agree with you. I, I think sanctions um, very much entrench um, the authoritarians we're we're trying to to combat. What's
1: explain the logic for for people that don't buy that. Well, sanctions are supposed to hurt the people, and they do hurt the people. But the the uh, let's say the regular uh, mom and pop in Venezuela that are hurt by the economic sanctions, they're now weaker, right? Mm-hmm. That means that relative to those in power, uh, those in power are now stronger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so to them is, to, 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 to those in power, to, to the Cuban regiment that is now Basically, sequestered Nicolas Maduro and and his uh, polity in, uh, uh, in 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 Venezuela. Basically, what you're doing is you're 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 um, indirectly empowering them uh, by making the potential opposition uh, by making the potential opposition weaker. We saw this during the so-called humanitarian crisis. Uh, actually, in, instead of uh, um, it's, it's very hypocritical of the Maduro regime to say, "Oh, but these sanctions." Well, what do you think? What do you think? What you yourself did by burning the trucks that came in with humanitarian aid? You yourself imposed a sanction, yeah, because you didn't want those people to be able to have a greater wherewithal in yeah. the midst of this tremendous and rampant misery. They use so, they, they they use food as a weapon. Um, they use fo- they weaponize they weaponize uh, electricity shortages and they weaponize uh, uh, food shortages and they. And this is what's worked in Cuba. It's worked in North Korea. It's part and parcel of the new authoritarianism. I don't think Mexico could, could, could get to that. I don't think, I, I think the, the, the uh, but then again, nobody ever thought Venezuela would be yeah. where they are. Yeah. And Venezuela, the greatest harm to Venezuela has come from the brutal hemorrhage of human capital. The great minds, the great Venezuelan minds that have fled looking for whatever wherever you you go to a place like miami and this is partially what gets your conservative friends and my not so friends (laughs) uh angry is that you go to miami basically the financial industry there and it's all venezuelans they're all legally established and they're all become legalized but they're venezuelan origin and they're never going to go back they're never ever going to go back. Some of the greatest minds and the greatest writers today—historians, philosophers, logicians, mathematicians—they come from uh, uh, they, they come from Venezuela. Um, in, in finance, they're uh, they're spectacular. In retail, they've done some some uh, tremendous work. Some of the examples here in the United States that also the immigration issue that has become so sensitive and so offensive uh, to many. You think, if you, if you Google who's the best chef in the world in 2019, it's a Mexican. Where's that Mexican living? It's a woman uh, that studied under Enrique Olvera, the famous chef in Mexico, that has a restaurant, where? In New York. Gee, she, she should be back home generating employment and value added. So people don't, don't talk about the benefit that, that this woman is bringing here and the loss that we're having in terms of the, the opportunity cost of having exported that human capital, or of Dr. Q, the famous Dr. Q in Los Angeles that operates uh, cancerous brain tumors from people that come all over the world because he's considered one of the top three uh, cancer neurosurgeons in the world and used to be a tomato picker. He, he came into the United States illegally. Now. That doesn't mean that I'm in favor of illegal immigration. I hate the fact that my brothers and sisters from Mexico are crossing the river and crossing into zones that sometimes they get shot just because they're not, they they shouldn't be there. Um, but uh, but if we we look at it from a from from a purely rational or non-emotional point of view, immigration has enormous benefits. I think that represents a great policy challenge of how to be able to accommodate the market needs of immigration in the United States and these migrant caravans and those that are looking for opportunities, they're also looking for opportunities where there are opportunities, yeah. right? Yeah. Canada seems to have, you know, we hardly ever talk about Canada, but Canada seems to have a, a more flexible uh, regime despite all their flexibilities in, 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 in other areas. Nobody is, nobody is uh, illegally crossing
0: the border into Venezuela today.
1: Nobody's illegally crossing the border into Venezuela or into North Korea or into Cuba. Maybe it'll be one of these uh, very confused uh, uh, academics. (laughs) There's a fantastic uh, economist uh, specializes in human capital, uh, the economics of education and human capital, Kevin Murphy of Chicago. He was in Mexico recently and he said, you know, if they end up building the wall for the sake of the United States, I hope it's really tall and really big. Because it'll take somebody really intelligent and really good to come across, and that's the kind of human capital that we need in the United States. That that's the kind of person that will contribute to value-added and to a growing economy, a prosperous and inclusive economy, a sharing economy. Uh, obviously, he he said it as a as a, as a, um, in an ironic fashion, but I think it was very revealing to to show that that, that no. You should be welcoming this capital, rather than than, uh, than um, turning it into a political um, into a political time bomb, which it has been. So
0: my my theory on, on the wall and enhanced efforts to to stop illegal immigration is that, um, and conservatives love to say that walls work, and I think I think at the margin. Well, uh, Wall's work. Ronald
1: Reagan certainly didn't think so, but. Yeah,
0: but Wall's work in their context for, like, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna stop the flow of, of illegal immigration, and, and I think at the margin, it, it probably discourages that family looking to come to this country to work and to follow the laws and to mm-hmm. do the things they wanna do. Um, but the, certainly, the people that are not discouraged would be, um, say, violent drug gangs. Who are making substantial money by getting their products, and it's not just drugs, but it's it's all the things that Donald Trump says is happening. Um, do you, do you buy that? Do 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 walls not only um, discourage good people from coming, but actually
1: make it more profitable they for increase, bad people to yeah, to they, figure out a way across? They increase the price of meth and cocaine at the retail level. Yeah. That's all it. That's all it does. Yeah. Because they'll find a way. And as long as you have this voracious demand, or if you have people wanting to consume something, I mean, I think we should be thinking more about the health aspect, and about intelligent uh, uh, policies that, that contemplate liberalization, or maybe through zones, I don't know. In theory, I would like I would like for all of it to be uh, decriminalized. Yeah. Uh, that's my personal point of view. And and I promise you that personal point of view is also shared by in extremely Catholic house mothers and taxi drivers and soccer players and and taco stand owners. It seems to be, have become conventional wisdom. Why? Because when you have over thirty thousand people that are murdered, and ninety percent or ninety five percent of that is gang wars, all these horrendous stories about. Uh, bloodshed, decapitations, and, and, and mutilations and whatnot, that those are basically gangs sending symbols between them. Don't, don't mess with me. Don't mess with my turf. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, as a result of the extremely high profit margins that are occasioned by the prohibition in, uh, 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 in well, in the United States, in Europe, in, 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 in Canada, but fundamentally in the U.S., So if you put a wall, all you're doing is increasing the price. It's inelastic, right? It's not going to vary. You're just going to instead of the uh, gram of cocaine that goes for two hundred or three hundred or whatever, it's now three fifty. So thank you, Senor Trump, Uh, muchas gracias. Yeah, because you're certainly not going to stop them, and that 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 will empower them. There's, this is not an easy solution. And as far as illegal immigrants, let me tell you, man. Empirical studies have shown, and this is, I mean, this is, it can be de, the Democrat Bordernomics or it can be the Migration Policy Institute and the great uh, work that, uh, uh, um, that Andrew Selle is doing there, and, or, or it can be uh, El Colegio de la Frontera del Norte. They're going to tell you the Bush Institute. The Bush Institute published a fantastic study a few years ago by Matt Denhardt showing 70% of illegal immigrants from Mexico, they come in on a low-cost flight and they overextend their welcome. So now planes usually fly over so walls. We're, we're talking like a high wall. To it stop would that. have to be like, yeah, really, yeah. really high wall. A really wall. high and, wall. And so, no, what you need what you, what you need to do is rather uh, compliance has to be easier, and you need to think about schemes where, where you make the people willing to participate. And if you want to control migratory flows, well, then you're going to have to be able to participate in lotteries or, or 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 and and so make make the illegal the exception to the rule and actually for every illegal immigrant going across the border into the united states today the tendency in the past 10 years has been three mexicans coming back yeah so those roles are reversed yeah but that's another story altogether
0: so we need um and i you know i think there's uh there's there's confusion on both sides of the political aisle here. Um, Bernie Sanders has complained about the so-called open border policies of libertarians and the Koch brothers, and in, in a lot of ways he he sounds like Donald Trump when he talks about that kind of stuff. But but there's there are some basic economics that that could inform our policies in in Mexico specifically, and I I think you you mentioned it, and I would I would double down on that. Uh, End the drug war is, ending the drug war is probably the most um, uh, immediately um, consequential way of pulling the rug out from under violent drug cartels. Mm-hmm. And that immediately has an impact on the rule of law and and the, the the violence that we see in a lot of countries in Latin America that that are along that, that drug food chain leading right up to the
1: border. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. Yeah. And there's some proposals that, uh, that, uh, that have been fielded just for, for the sake of conceptual argument uh, that uh, maybe what Mexico should do is uh, uh, they should help the uh, DA or the health um, uh, dependency, the, the health uh, state uh, organization in charge or whatever uh, to subsidize the price of cocaine so that it's zero. Because there's no way they could compete with that. Yeah. Now, you would have a hell of a health problem. But the violence, you eradicated all the violence surrounding cocaine. You eradicated from day one. So it's just it's a conceptual exercise. It's a, it's a thought experiment, right? If Mexico devoted so much money to finance uh, that the that anybody wanted cocaine could get it in the wherever uh, in, in the different states at zero, uh, yeah, the demand would increase substantially. Um, but as a thought experiment. It works very uh, very neatly because you put you put the drug lord out of business and those margins, dr- drug lords today, um, are typical examples of, of the type of protected crony market. So they're, they're... it's not not even the quality of their product. It's the fact it's it's the fact that they've quartered the market through yeah through prohibitions through legal prohibitions through through uh through legal discrimination and. Uh, and and so, I don't think it's a I don't think drug decriminalization is a magic wand. Uh, I, I do share the Kevin Murphy or Gary Becker idea that let's give this a shot. It certainly has a better chance than the drug war, which has produced in Mexico thirty five thousand uh, um, lives per year. Uh, and has uh, occasioned just a tremendous opportunity cost and, and, and bloodshed and and uh, um, um, fear and concern and and so let's let's give it ten years and see what the results are. You know, if in ten years we find out that the health problem is insurmountable or or whatnot, then we can revisit uh, our, our strategies. I know that politically it's going to be very difficult, but. Uh, but never in my mind I thought that in my lifetime I would see a push towards marijuana legalization. And one thing that Lopez Obrador is doing in Mexico and seriously considering is legalizing all parts of the marijuana market. Yeah, and That that I think would be a good thing.
0: Well, we had, we had an experiment that we've talked about on this show in, in Portugal. And the, the data in the last 20 years, Portugal was infamously the worst place by any measure in terms of uh, drug deaths, drug violence, uh, Illness, uh, young people using drugs, and by decriminalizing everything, um, all the data got better. They went from um, the worst in the EU to the best in terms of, of uh, violence and, and death mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. But it's it is even in even in very conservative states like Utah in this country they just they just passed. A referendum that legalized medical cannabis. So, mm-hmm. there, there's even some, there. Yeah, even there, and it was it was wildly um, supported, popular with Republicans in the mm-hmm. state of Utah. So, I think I think in a lot of ways, marijuana is is kind of a done deal in this country. That the people are there. The the Trump administration is has very mixed opinions on this. In some ways, they want to ramp up the drug war. In other ways, Trump himself has has supported. Uh, certainly, medical cannabis and and mm-hmm. other things as well. Um, you said something earlier, and I think this is a is a, an important um, thing that I wanted to drill down on. It. Most people, I think, are are shocked that that Venezuela has gotten so bad. And you you could go all the way back to the origins of uh, Hugo Chavez, and you know he was a he certainly didn't sell himself as a socialist. He was a he was a populist, and he was going to return, you know, the Bolivia, Boliviar's Revolution kind of thing. But things got bad, and it was one thing after another. Uh, you say that Mexico can't go there, but how do we make sure that
1: that doesn't happen? Well, I, uh, let me let me hedge that by saying, I hope Mexico can, doesn't go there, and I don't think that given the conditions. It, it could materialize into the uh, implosion and deterioration of Venezuela is suffering. So here's, here, here are my thoughts uh, about it. Uh, Hugo Chavez uh, won like López Obrador did on a ticket of disenfranch- disenfranchisement. In other words, I speak for the disenfranchised, for those that are fed up with the oligopolies, the establishment, the privilege, what uh, what 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 he calls in Spanish the fifis. Fifis is like the you know, the bad yuppies sort of the Gordon Gecko uh, style. Uh, it's like the elites. Like, but really, just the nauseating elites that that have been able to get rich on the expense of you, which in a sense they have because of monopoly privileges. Sure. So the the those oligarchs, I mean, there there were several in the classical liberal movement that actually praised the fact that Chavez had gotten into power because they were fed up with the way that oligarchs represented themselves as spokespersons for the market and for openness and whatnot, and that was was leading us nowhere. And so once he does that, he comes out of the closet, he says he's a Bolivarian socialist, and he's gonna impose a socialist revolution, but really I think the socialism was just an excuse to cement power. It's a man sick with power. Mm -hmm. And I think López Obrador is very much what Enrique Krause uh, famous uh, historian in Mexico, uh, liberal, histor- classical liberal historian in Mexico, called the tropical Messiah. So, uh, very much a Messiah, but from the tropical state of Tabasco. Yeah. So there's a little uh, uses and customs from Tabasco infused into this um, into this populism. That's why I mentioned Saint Benedict and the local community and they teach you how to be virtuous, and and. Um, and so I, I think that uh, Chavez had the enormous luck of being in, in a country, uh, first of all, that was young, like Mexico is today, and second, that um, that 80% of the economy depended on petroleum. So this was an economy very much energy-linked. And, of course, when he comes into power in 1999, 1998, 1999, that's when the big boom, commodity boom, starts. And so he's enjoying a fresh uh, uh, source of, of new capital coming in, in in a degree that Mario Vargas Llosa has calculated that it's the greatest failed experiment in the history of the world of the amount of money that it could have made Venezuela, from an investment point of view, could have turned Venezuela into a first world country in one generation. And it was squandered away with handouts and with political patronage and whatnot. So I like to compare it to the trust uh, fund child effect of a a sort of a fool, uh, uh, very much of a fool in the family that is wasting his or her trust fund, but has that continuous flow to do all the bad things that you're not supposed to do over and over and over and over and over again. The same thing happened in Argentina with high commodity prices. It's sort of the, the morphing that kept coming in was hiding all the really bad things that were going on in terms of the legal reforms or, or the policy initiatives. López Obrador does not have that luxury. And the first thing, the number one source, the number one source of income in the United, in, in, uh, in the United States of Mexico, in los Estados Unidos Mexicanos, are exports. And exports are highly diversified. Oil exports are broad, and it's only crude. We we import, believe it or not. I bet you, I bet you, most of our audience does not know this. Mexico imports seventy percent of its refined products from the United States. We buy our get most of our gasoline comes from the United States. Our shortages that we had at the beginning of the year was because of a stupid. Uh, public policy. All oh, we're independent, and we're autarky, and we're not going to depend from the U.S. Okay, so now you're going to have to, you know, be in line for three hours in order to in Mexico City, the largest city in the world. Imagine that. The kind of the kind of damage that that did. Um, so, so if if your country is highly diversified in that sense, I'm not saying it's an automatic check, but it's going to be the the damage is going to be far more instantaneous. There's no morphing there. On yeah, the contrary, what you're doing there's is you're,
0: there's no free money to hand out. No there's money. there's no there's no cash flow to buy votes and the, unless
1: you expropriate the central bank, and then all thing, hell breaks loose.
0: things fall apart. Things fall apart very quickly. Yeah,
1: in an age of high capital mobility, which is what a lot of Lopez Obrador's people have not understood that capital, it's quicksilver and it's vicious and virulent. And they don't, the capital doesn't sleep. It's 24 7, 365 days a year. And it doesn't matter if it's in a factory or in a T-bill, it goes.
0: Well, I think we all agree that, that we don't want Mexico to, to go the way of Venezuela. And so the, uh, the, the homework for anybody watching or listening today is, is, is figure out how we expand free trade with Mexico, figure out how we um, pull the rug out from under the drug lords. And spend a little bit of time understanding um how how our economies are actually integrated and and what hurts one it's hurts hurt the other get... and also, that that hurts workers everywhere
1: look one one additional thing uh, uh um matt to back- back that up is look at everything that's happened in in the southern uh the United States. Whether you have a Democrat uh, governor or you have a Democrat um, um, municipal president, um, uh, stay, um, of of let's say of a town like uh, like like uh, like Phoenix or Tampa, or 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 you have uh, Jim Abbott in Texas, they've all become they've all become spokespersons of Mexico and doing damage control. Why? Because there's business at stake. There's very important business at stake. Now, San Diego is fully integrated with Tijuana. San Diego is gorgeous. Tijuana is horrendous. But they even have a cross-border bridge nowadays where people can come and forth. You pay five bucks and they do a, they, they vet you and you can come and go as you please. Um, or, and, and depending on where you, you're going, you can take a flight from the San Diego airport or take a flight from the Tijuana airport. Uh, So this does not discriminate between your political orientation. It's just good business to to, to expand. If you can sell more and buy more on both sides of the border, that's common sense.
0: Roberto Salinas-Leon, thank you for this. And uh, let's have some more cold beer.
1: I'd, (laughs) I'd love to. Thank you. It's a great opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.